especially as, as kids get beyond preschool and kind of elementary grades. And you think about yourself more as a consultant to your kid than as the kid's boss or manager or taskmaster who always knows best. And there's four implications from this idea. And one is that most of the kids I see need help. That they need tutoring, they need speech and language therapy, they need psychotherapy. And I want them to have help, but I don't believe in trying to force it on them. I don't want them using all their energy fighting something that would probably help them a lot. But I want them to eventually come around. I probably need this. So I don't want to force help on them. We want to share our advice and our wisdom about life, but we don't want to try to ram it down their throat because it just doesn't take. As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle, light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's fire starters are William Stixrude and Ned Johnson. When the self-driven child authors, Bill Stixrud and Ned Johnson, began comparing notes years ago, They discovered a common problem among their young clients. Kids were stressed. Many complained that they felt powerless to shape their own destinies. Some stumbled in high school while others hit college and unraveled. Bill is a clinical neuropsychologist who helps kids gripped by anxiety and struggling to learn. Ned is a motivational coach who runs an elite tutoring service. Together, they discovered that the best antidote to stress is to give kids a sense of control. In their book and their talks, Bill and Ned offer a combination of cutting-edge brain science, the latest discoveries in behavioral therapy, and case studies drawn from the thousands of kids they've helped. Armed with this research, they advise that parents and educators adopt the role of consultant rather than manager to give kids more responsibility for their life decisions even before they leave home. Evidence strongly suggests that age-appropriate autonomy is vital for young people's mental health and it helps them to sculpt their brains that they are resilient, resourceful, and ready to take on new challenges. Well, welcome, Bill and Ned. Thanks for having us, Rebecca. Nice to be here. (laughs) It's going to be kind of fun to do this triangular thing, so hopefully none of us cut each other off, but um, I'm really excited to have you guys on the podcast. I really feel like, especially the new direction of our podcast, this is a perfect book to talk about. You were highly recommended by Blake Bowles, who, you know, when I was telling him I was doing coaching for parents, and my number one question was, how do I get my kids to do X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, wow, we can't make our kids do anything. So I'm I'm like, we got to move this to a new direction so that we're focused more on, you know, how parents, like what our behaviors, how they're affecting our kids. But what I'd love to hear, maybe why don't each of you take some time and tell our audience a little bit about yourself. I don't know who wants to go first. but I'll defer to the good doctor. Well, this is Bill and I live in Silver Spring, Maryland and have been married for 43 years to a wonderful wife. And I have two children and three grandchildren. I haven't seen my grandchildren in nine weeks, and it's just, they live eight minutes away. 
But in any case, I, I'm a neuropsychologist. In the last 35 years, I made a living by, by testing kids uh, who have learning problems or emotional problems or ADHD or autism. I try to figure out what's wrong and how to help them. And I'm a rock and roll musician. I play in a rock and roll band. And I've been meditating for 47 years. Well, that's cool. I think we'll talk a little bit about meditating, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. That's great. And what about you, Ned? Do you want to tell us? Well, I, I guess I'm sort of the junior partner to all that. I've, I've, <laughs> I've, been married, I've been married for 24 years. I have a son who's a senior in high school, daughter's a sophomore. Been meditating for a little less than a decade. Uh, Bill, I run a, a company called Prep Matters. We do academic tutoring and test prep and college counseling. And so since 1993, I've basically been a tutor geek, uh, help kids prepare for and confront and the alphabet of standardized tests that are probably too prevalent in American society. But um, it allows me to interact with teens and I found them pretty cool. So uh, yeah. I'll keep doing it for a while. Well, and how did you guys get together? You know, have you been friends and stuff? And then how did that work into co-authoring this book together? There's a couple of people who, who knew Ned and I, and even though I'm 20 years older than Ned, my work is, is related in some ways, but it's different. And this, you guys think so much alike. You, you'd really enjoy each other. And so we got together and found out we had a lot in common. And we started lecturing together, initially about motivation, about how do kids become self-motivated. I've been lecturing for years about stress and how chronic stress affects kids' learning and their development. And we started lecturing about motivation and stress and the optimal environments for learning. And we decided to write a book, trying to think about what's the, what should be the organizing principle of, of the stuff we, we know is helpful to parents. And then at one point I said, I think that everything that we think is useful is related to a sense of control. So we wrote this book, The Self-Driven Child. We argue that one of the most important things we can do for kids is, is helping develop this healthy sense of control over their own lives. Ned, do you want to add anything to that, buddy? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And when we talk about the sense of control, there's sort of two aspects to it. One is kind of the, the subjective sense of autonomy, right? You know, these are my choices, of my goals. I, I get to have some say about this. Being in the brain sex, which kind of, you know, executive functions, most um, recently involved part of the brain regulates the rest of your brain, including the, the stress response of the, of the amygdala. And so, you know, Bill is a clinical neuropsychologist, works with a lot of kids for whom learning isn't easy and trying to figure out how to help them be motivated when learning isn't easy, right? And I'm kind of oftentimes the other end of kids who are sometimes motivated to a fault, right? That they're kind of, you know, obsessively or perfectionistically driven, really high expectations for themselves, but then they would go and take things like standardized tests, underperform relative to what they've been doing for practice or what their expectations were. Again, trying to figure out how to help them do their best given this anxiety. And so where, where Bill probably started this more of a, from a, almost from a clinical perspective of what's going on with, with stress, I, I really came, you know, sort of first came to this through trying to understand from a performance perspective of what too much stress does, kind of underperformance, and then what are the things that help people be less anxious? And then some of these tools are feeling a greater sense of control in, in a situation that, that can feel a little intense. That's great. Well, and as I was listening to the book, like I said, this COVID-19, I had to listen to it, although I'm going to go buy 
copies for all of my friends because it's fantastic. But <laughs> as I as I was listening silver, to silver linings, right? Yes, so we're looking for whatever we can find. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but as I was listening to this book, though, I feel like it could be like a range of people who you were talking to. You know, it can be directed to parents. It could be directed towards the teacher. It could be even directed towards the kid themselves. Who was the the main audience that you were trying to capture by writing this book? <laughs> Well, it's funny. I initially really wanted to write a book for teens because I just spend more time. I mean, I talk to the parents, but most of my work is really with kids directly. Bill probably spent more time with parents, probably, and spent a lot of, you know, a lot of time giving them great advice for decades now. And so we were a little bit back and forth. Our agent, Howard Yoon, who's this incredibly, <laughs> wonderfully, wonderful guy, and also very wise, you know, sort of with a tiebreaker. And he just looked at me and he said, Ned, teenagers don't buy books. So there we have it, right? So it really was designed most for parents and also for educators, because everything we're, we're talking about, how do you help kids develop intrinsic motivation? How do you help them perform well? How do you help them be less anxious? This is important for everyone who spends time with the young people. A lot of what's in there is, of course, based on brain science and, and stories that, that resonate. So a lot of it really does work for kids. Actually, one of our, our favorite Amazon testimonials, I guess you call it, that was a mom who said it, she was reading the book and at some point, she was on a chapter about technology, and she you got to listen to this, you got to listen to this. And she said, at some point, my 14-year-old son took the book and said, I got to read this myself. And he took the book upstairs, read the chapter on technology, and came back down to his mom and said, I think I'd like your help helping me manage my use of technology. That's cool. So, and part of it, you know, we work really hard to, and really suggest to parents as well, they treat kids respectfully. Yeah. Because one, it's just the right thing to do, and two from whether it's relationships or, or brain science and performance anxiety, you just get much, much better outcomes. Because you've made this at the start of this, Rebecca said, you can't make kids do things. You can make it so friggin' unpleasant that they agree to do it, but you're really not making them do it. They, 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 you can't make something do something against someone, do something against the will. So yeah, in, in a perfect, some our probably third book will be something that's more directed right to kids because I think it's, you know, I, I think there's, we think there's a lot to be said this in this book that, that, that kids themselves would, would want because they, you know, they too want their lives to be successful. Yeah, but sometimes you have to start with the parents, though, because you have to let the parents realize, like, kids need some control over their life. And I love, like, right at the beginning, I think it was, like, in Chapter 3, you basically lay out, like, some different ways that parents need to think about their kids. Do you want to talk about that? Like, how should we change our paradigm when it comes to our children? Because so we, we think they're they're ours, right? And we have this sense of like responsibility over these people. Right. And so I'll just add to regarding to the previous question, which is, you know, we wrote the book primarily for parents, but figuring it's going to affect kids. And also uh, figuring that teachers read a lot of books that are written for parents. And the last two years since the book come out, We've talked to dozens of school faculty. Uh, I think this all needs to be totally in the school, <laughs> personally. There's a chapter on taking a sense of control of the school where we talk about some schools. It's not a comprehensive treatise about how to help build self-control, but there, we, we talk about some important issues in that chapter. But generally, we, we assume that teachers would read it as well. And the first thing that we recommend for parents and also for educators is that especially as kids get beyond preschool and kind of elementary grades, and you think about yourself more as a consultant to your kid than as the kid's boss or manager or taskmaster who always knows best. And there's four implications from this idea. And one is that 
most of the kids I see need help. Then they need tutoring, or they need speech and language therapy, or they need psychotherapy. And I want them to have help, but I don't believe in trying to force it on them. I don't want them using all their energy fighting something that would probably help them a lot. But I want them to eventually come around. I probably need this. So I don't want to force help on them. We want to share our advice and our wisdom about life, but we don't want to try to ram it down their throat because it just doesn't take. One of my colleagues moved to Florida years ago and sent me a greeting card said, I want to give you some advice that my mother gave me because I sure as hell won't be using it. You know, and, and, <laughs> and just the idea. So what we suggest is just get by it. You say, you know, I've got a thought about that. I, I got an idea about that. You want to hear it? I have some advice. Do you, do you want to hear my opinion? We just kind of get buy-in. If the kid says, no, not really, you respect that. Because mm-hmm. usually they want to hear it. Usually they'll come back to you. So we, we, want, we want to offer help, not try to force it. We want to offer our, our opinion, our advice, our wisdom, but not so many parents say, I've told them a thousand times. Don't tell them a thousand times. Tell them once or twice and remind them. And then if it's not responding, do something different. Don't keep saying. And the third thing is that we want kids as much as possible to make their own decisions. That we want, I just talked to somebody today who's they live in New York City, and they have a 17-year-old, and they got out of the city because of so much COVID there, upper state New York, and now the kid wants to go back. And they're thinking, well, it's not safe. And the kid turns 18 in six months. And it's this dilemma of the parents say, no, it's not safe, you can't go. Or do they support her and say, this, this is your life, you're a responsible person, let's talk to the pros and cons. And I don't know the right answer, given how serious this COVID is. But generally, we want kids, and especially after puberty, we want kids to make as, as much as they can to make the important decisions about their own life. And the last thing is simply that the way kids become resilient is they have a problem and they deal with it. And they deal with it by engaging their prefrontal cortex, which dampens down the stress response, and they go into coping mode. And we want kids to have that experience of coping with their own problems because as parents, we have what some people call a writing reflex, meaning my kid brings you a problem, I say, here's how to solve it. You need to do this or this or that. If we do that, we deprive them of the experience of solving their own problems, which is what makes them resilient. Ned, do you want to add? No, I mean, I think that's all right. And I think that, that last point is, well, two points in the bit, that the experience of handling things on your own is the only way that you wire your brain to know that it can handle things, right? You know, mm-hmm. we have such a tendency when our kids are struggling to want to jump in and fix and solve because we, you know, we don't want our kids to suffer. And also it's really distressing to us to see them in distress. But when we're doing that, we're making ourselves feel better, maybe them as well, but we're missing an opportunity because it's much better to develop the ability to save yourself, to know that you can save yourself than to have someone else, you know, do that for you. So sometimes people hear this and say, Oh, we just, you're saying just let, let your kid alone, let him suffer. And so we're not saying that at all. We're saying that we simply don't want to do for kids things that they can do for them themselves. And so we want to offer help, but we don't want to make it our responsibility when it's something that very much can or, or arguably should be their responsibility. Um, yes. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, and it's not always, it's just not, it's not easy to do that. Partly, you know, kids are constantly developing new abilities and it can be hard for us to remember, oh, this kid isn't four anymore. She's not 14 anymore. She's yeah, actually- That's really hard. Handless. I, I remember when I was, I think I was 12, maybe 11, my family had moved, moved from Pennsylvania to New York and we were upstate New York, had the moving van and they were unpacking all this stuff. And so we're all helping move stuff. And I go to pick something up and my mom's like, no, 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 that's much too heavy for you. And I can just, I can distinctly remember thinking the back of my head, woman, 
how, how could you possibly know what's too heavy for me? How, 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 you know, you don't live inside me. You don't see what I do all, all day long. So yeah, I think we, again, you know, to Bill's point, we, we want to, we can offer help. We can, we can offer suggestions, but we want to be as respectful as possible. And it's just like lifting weights. You want to spot for a kid, you know, help him, help him up if he needs to help, but don't lift it for him. Yeah. I loved how in the book you actually talk about what toddlers, you know, kind of the responsibilities you can give them all the way up, you know, grade schoolers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, and then even beyond with I'm starting to enter that realm of like, you know, adult children <laughs> who need to make their own decisions. But So I think the book is excellent in that regard. And I do feel like parents, we have a really hard time. Like we raised this child from the point he was a baby, like to realize like, oh, he's able to, you know, what's appropriate to do at certain levels and the responsibility to give to him. And I thought it was interesting too, that you brought up um, different parenting styles, you know, like the I think we're seeing more and more of the helicopter parent, which I think is interesting. I'm a Gen Xer and we were uh, latchkey kids where our parents had no idea where we were at <laughs> most of mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. But then we've almost switched to like... Um, and look, look and, that, and there's an entire generation of, of people of that age who didn't end all of debt, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, if, 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 ever, if there was like no one from your generation, like, well, that's a flawed model, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I do. I mean, I know my own specific self is that I've kind of turned more so, you know, to that helicopter thing because there was a part of me, like, I appreciated the fact that my parents thought I was capable and that, you know, they just turned me loose and let me do what I needed to do. But then at the same time, I never really felt like they cared, you know, in a way. And so then I turned like the other way. And I guess it's just trying to find that good, happy medium of like, you know, what's good and helpful to let our children grow and, you know, gain all of these skills that they're going to need for the rest of their life. And then what's a way to make sure that they feel like, they're cared about and that we love them and that we've got their back, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So do you want to talk a little bit maybe about parenting styles and how um, sure, sure. that might play into, you know, how we raise our children? Sure. This, this is Bill. And we talk about the, the, the three parenting styles that have been researched since the 1960s, the, the kind of authoritarian, it's my way or the highway because I said so style the laissez-faire, kind of you're on your own, you know, we're, we're supposed to be best friends, I don't know, set limits. And with the, the third is the authoritative, which is that, that we work out limits and rules, we treat each other respectfully. But also, also but I, I take an interest in you, I value your opinion, I support your autonomy. I, I see you as an independent person who has your own thoughts and feelings. And over the last 60 years, there's been hundreds of studies that have shown that the authoritative approach doesn't work very well. The laissez-faire is even worse. And this authoritative, this sweet spot, the authoritative where you, you, we set limits and we're the guides of our family. But we aren't, we aren't the authoritarian bosses. We, we care about, we, we want kids to practice making their own decisions. We, we treat them respectfully. And the title of our the second chapter of the book that introduces this idea of thinking of yourself as a consultant, it's called, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And so the idea is that in author from an authoritative point of view, we can make sure that, that we work out limits on screen time, but we, can't, we, we don't try to fight with the kid about homework. We, don't, we, we give up the idea that somehow we could make him do it. And it's easier said than done. One of my clients sent me an email after she read the book and she said, I, I just told my 13-year-old son, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And first he smiled 
And then he hugged me. And then he said, is something wrong with you, mom? <laughs> but, but this idea, we're working on a second book and focusing a lot on just getting the energy right. And the energy right means that we, that, that we realize it's a kid's life. I want to support the kid. And the question about expectations you're raising, Rebecca, we have a chapter on when do expectations stop being positive and become toxic? Because mm-hmm. there's extensive evidence that having high expectations really translates into confidence. I have confidence my kid can do well. But it can also become toxic if, if, they're, if they're way out of line or, or you, have to, you have to get into a high-value school, that kind of stuff. If it feels to the kid the expectations are unconditional, I, I prove to you conditionally. So what we want to do is we want to treat the kids respectfully, let them know that we, we love them no matter what they do, and express confidence in them so that they develop high expectations in themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I like the idea, like I said, in chapter three, you talk about three ways like to help that parent change that mindset to this consultant type. And I, I always thought of it as gentle parenting, like, you know, that you work more as that consultant, but it's not this authoritarian I don't know why. There's all kinds of terms out there. And so I think I've confused mm-hmm. some of my listeners before because I talk a lot about like gentle parenting. But can you help parents shift their mindset so they're not in that laissez-faire uh, parenting and we're not authoritarian, but we're more in that consulting thing? I think you have well, it's, it's, three it's, different you know, questions the, the, to ask yourself the, or something. Well, you know, one, there's Jane Nelson, Dr. Jane Nelson, who wrote um, Positive Discipline, makes the point of being kind but firm. Right. And that authoritative model is characterized by both high love and high discipline. And in many ways, it, it, that's the harder place to be because it can be relatively easy to be lazy, fair, and do whatever you want because I don't want to say anything to upset you. And so you can never be unhappy with me because I let you do whatever you want. And so you're overly kind, but not very firm, right? But then the authoritative, we can be firm, 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 but not be so kind. And, and we all know this, that when we finally, you know, say something really strongly to people, we often, you know, to a, a spouse or a friend or a colleague at work or someone at the grocery store, right? That we oftentimes kind of like just erupt at people because we've, we've gotten frustrated enough or angry enough or whatever that we, we kind of come at them with all this energy and just kind of tell them. Um, and, and at that point, we let the kindness go. It's, it's hard or harder, I think, to be both kind and firm and, and to, to, to set limits and to say, here's what the expectations are, but not sort of beating people up. And if you think about yourself as a consultant, it becomes easier to do that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in, in that, you know, if you were a consultant to my company, right? You come say, here, Ned, I, I see some things and, and there's some things that are really going well, but there's some things that you really need, I think you're going to need to fix. And you may not want to hear this, but you're in leadership style, Ned, is, is such and such. And if you want to be more effective and, you know, you're telling me kind of oftentimes hard truth, but doing it in a gentle way. And because you're a consultant to me, you're not responsible for me. I can take that advice. I can hear it in the way that you intended, or I can ignore it. It's completely my choice. You can't make me take that advice because you're not the boss of me. Yeah. You're a consultant, <laughs> right? And so- Well, and I think it takes the stress off of parents too, because I mean, that's another thing I'm seeing with parents is that the rest of society expects us to have such a thumb on our fingers that I think even parents are stressed out, you know, like 
I'm having a hard enough time managing my own life, let alone for other people's, you know, little people's lives. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it is so true. I mean, if we feel that, I mean, again, if your kid didn't want to do something, he can just close his eyes and flop on the floor. What are you going to do? You're going to pick him up and duct tape him to the chair? But, I mean, you can't make him do it. And oftentimes it's the belief that if I could say it the right way, if I could do it, that I could make him do it. And that's a source of incredible frustration, not just for your kid, but for you as a parent, thinking that you can somehow do this because you kind of mm -hmm. go in circles. But if you make peace with the fact that it couldn't be your job to do something that's technically impossible, yeah. then to Bill's point, it very much changes the energy. And, and, and I laugh because, you know, I've spent, well, since 1993, you know, being a test prep guy and I'm trying to motivate people. I'm trying to, you know, help change their thinking a little bit, help them be more successful. But I have neither carrot nor stick. Right? I don't give them a grade. I don't, I don't give them allowance. Right? I can't take away yeah. the cell phone. Right? But I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to help them think about things differently so that they want to take the steps that I think will get them to where they, where they want to be. And it's by when we talk about so many parents think they, they want to have power over people. And I don't want to have power over people. I want to have influence. Yeah. And when you I, don't exert influence by, by ramming it down people's throats. When I can't remember if it was in the introduction or one of the first chapters where you talked about like, you know, as, as a parent, think of all your other relationships that you have with, with other people. You know, if you were so controlling over your spouse, what would, what would that be like if you were controlling with your friends? And then one of the things that I love too, I think it's like six points of why we're right. And I got, I got uh, five of them. I'm like, I don't know where I missed number four, but um, <laughs> I was so enraptured. But anyway, um, one of the things I love is that you say we don't always know what's best for our child. It takes some humility to be that consultant parent. What would you say about that? Well, um, this is Bill again. And because I, you know, I, I have grandchildren I've been, and I've worked with kids for a really long time. And the older I get, the more humble I become about knowing what's in a kid's best interest. And partly, most certainly, the, maybe one of the most painful experiences, the most embarrassing experience I've ever had in my life was when I started graduate school in English literature at Berkeley, and I flunked out within, within two quarters. So I didn't turn any work in. I felt at the time that my whole life was going up in smoke. I had this fantasy about being an English professor, and it was, was up in smoke. So I go back and I'm working in a warehouse and just filling it, and I got fired from a job typing. And it took me about six weeks to realize that, that I always felt like an imposter with other English literature types. That wasn't me. And within two months, I was aware that, that, that what felt like the big disaster was actually the best thing that could have possibly happened. But I think that happens so often with mm -hmm. that, that it's, they have a bruise here, that they have a setback here. They often grow from it. Yeah. good things out of it. And so that's why the, the point, the, the, the six points you're, you're thinking are the rationale for letting kids make their own decisions. And, and the idea is they don't get to decide everything. They don't get to be the boss. It's just that after puberty, we think about the best message you can give a kid besides, besides I'm crazy about you is I have confidence in your ability to make decisions about your own life and to learn from your mistakes. They want you to have a ton of practice doing that before you go up to college. They want you to have practice running your own life. Mm -hmm. With little kids, as you, as you said earlier, Rebecca, a guy that I talked to recently did his doctoral dissertation on promoting autonomy in two-year-olds. I mean, we can start early on giving kids a sense that this is your life. And, and I, I respect that you, you like to do it this way, not this way. Now, it's not that they get to be the boss of the family. 
It's just a supporting this autonomy and decision-making it really works. Well, and as a parent, I think the more that we can do that, the more, I, I think it's just a human nature to push back against anyone who's forcing us to do anything, regardless of how old you are. Yes. And, um, and I think as a parent, if we can allow as much autonomy as possible, but like you said, not to the point, like we're allowing a two-year-old to do something totally dis, you know, right. but if you can allow that, you might get greater cooperation and uh, you, you'll have less power struggles, less arguing, less fighting. What do you think about that kind of thing? Like the disciplinary thing. Some people think like if you don't control other people, you're going to have more disciplinary problems, but it really well, seems like less in a way. Well, I, I think that if we give up the idea that we're supposed to be able to control other people, including our kids, we give up the idea that we're supposed to force them, then it gives us tremendous, it, at first it feels like very threatening, but eventually it feels very powerful because we start, we align our thinking with reality. And then as Ned said, we, start to, we, we, we focus on, on making sure our relationship with our kid is strong and not filled with fighting because we influence our kids in a much more positive way if, if we aren't fighting with them all the time. And so, Ned, do you want to come in? Yeah, and one of the things, you know, is we're talking about this in our second book, that most people are ambivalent about change, right? They may be in a situation where, you know, they're, they're doing something, you know, I don't know, maybe they're not doing well in, in school, pick on that. And, you know, kids would like to do better. Maybe they want to do better. But when they think about all the reasons why they want to do better, why that could be useful to them, they can also think about all the reasons why that's not. Like, what if it's a lot of work, or if I really try hard and then I don't succeed, then I'll be, I'll be even more frustrated or look more like a dope. You know, and so, so a lot of times people get stuck. And what, what we can often do as parents is go in there and lean heavily on, you've, you've got to take this seriously, you've got to work hard, blah, blah, blah. And what happens is, rather than kids hearing all the reasons why we should do this, they start in their minds or, or in words, start arguing all the reasons why they can't. And when you get away from that idea of fighting or forcing, it creates an environment where kids are much better able to, to take steps in the right direction or, or put more simply, where they stop fighting what's probably in their own best interest. So, so often it's not what parents are suggesting or, or what parents are asking, it's the how. Mm -hmm. and, and we work from the assumption that, that your kids too want their lives to work out. They want to be successful. And oftentimes is how do we go about this? And, you know, we as mature adults, shouldn't the burden be on us to be a little bit more flexible in our approach yeah. rather than asking the kids to do it the way that we want them to do it? Yeah, I think that was one of your points is that you've got to believe that your children want their lives to turn out just as successful as you want their lives to turn out. You know, you've got to have that trust in them that there's that belief. I'd love to hear a little bit about the science. That was one of the other six reasons why you're right is that science is on your side as far as, you know, with autonomy and brain function, that executive function. What's kind of the sciencey side behind it? Well, one aspect in, in terms of, of the, the decision-making is that the cognitive functions for making decisions are pretty much mature by the time you're about 14 years old. So, so most teenagers have pretty good decision-making skills. And also, one of the really interesting scientific discoveries in the last 20 years has been we used to think that you make your best decisions purely rationally. 
by, by putting your feelings aside. And it turns out that Antonio Damasio demonstrated that if you damage certain emotional processing centers in the brain, you can't decide what to have for breakfast. The decisions are, are rooted in, in emotion. So what we want for kids is we want kids to have a lot of experience tuning into their own emotions and seeing mm-hmm. well, what do I really want? What's important to me? If I did this, how would it affect my family or my friends? So the idea is, and we don't, that's partly why we don't, we don't know what's best always. And we want kids to practice paying attention in my experience, because I, I see a lot of kids where the parents want me to, to try to talk them into something. And I say, but I don't believe in doing that, but I'll talk with them about it. And I start out by telling kids, I don't want anybody to try to force you to do this because you're a smart kid and, you know, and, I want you, and I want you to have a lot of experience making decisions about your own life. But let's think through the pros and cons together. And almost invariably, when I do that, kids can make a good, good decision for themselves as, as I could make for them or their parents could make for them. So that, that's part of the science. And that other science you want to talk about? Well, one of the things is, is this. I mean, so Bill, they mentioned that the, so the prefrontal cortex, which a lot of your listeners probably know about, but, it, you know, right behind the forehead, it's where executive functions reside, right? So problem solving, creativity, and, and cognitive and emotional flexibility. So we put things in perspective and, and really, you know, all kind of goal-directed behavior. Right? as opposed to the amygdala, which is the, is the threat response. And so when the amygdala fires, the prefrontal cortex goes offline by, by design. If a wild animal flees at me, I don't really want to sit there and try to you know, contemplate his motivation. I'm supposed to react quickly to save my life. And the problem is that when the amygdala fires, all rational thought goes bye-bye. And so, so often as parents, we can talk with kids, and if, but if, if parents are, we can do this with colleagues and spouses too, right? If I come at you, Rebecca, this is really important. I, you know, if I do that with a lot of energy and you feel like, whoa, your ability to really process and really hear what I'm trying to say is scrambled. And so if we want to be effective, if we really want to be effective, it's not what did I say, it's what did you hear? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'll give an example. So I have a daughter who's a sophomore in high school. She's brilliant. I mean, she's got 20 IQ points on her dad. She's also really intense. So she's currently, we're working on it, currently anxious and currently depressed. So her reactivity is kind of high and her brain works so much faster than mine does. So if she reacts, she's figured out she's way the heck down the road. If I want to have a conversation with her, we have to keep things at a low energy, a low pace. Otherwise, you know, her shields are up and we're not hearing each other. And so when some of the advice that we give is, again, you offer kids, you offer kids advice, but, but even this, and I do this r- routinely now with colleagues and kids, my, my and others, and say, may I have you some advice? Is it okay if I ask you a question? Because what I'm doing there is I'm giving my daughter some sense of control. And that sense of control lowers her stress response, which basically brings down the shields and makes her much more likely that she's hearing me. So we're kind of talking prefrontal cortex to prefrontal cortex. If I just go in there and say, shouldn't you, whatever, you know, which shields are up and she's going to be defensive and not really going to hear. So if, if you remember that when, when people fight back or you or they do doing this, it's just that whoops, 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 the, the chemistry, the chemistry is wrong. And so there really are effective tools to simply be more effective in communicating. And again, it's not the what so often as the how. 
I love that. I actually just did an interview with a person that wrote a book, How to Have Impossible Conversations. Oh. Anyway, and he was saying that some of the best ways is to ask questions. And it seems the same way with our own children, that if we ask people questions, then we can have better conversations with them because their defenses come down. Um, is that what you're saying? Like, and then yep. it opens up, it gives them the control of like, if they've been asked a question, then they have the ability to control maybe the direction of the topic and how all of that may go. Is that what you're meaning? Like, uh, yeah, because again, if we're giving them choice and even things like every time I'm at a school, I'll get a parent who, who will say, can I ask you a question about my kid? And they'll start telling me, well, so I told him this, and I told him this, and I told him this, and he just wants something to told him, and, and telling me kind of all but what, basically looking for validation. Isn't that right? Don't I have that right? Wasn't that the right advice? And after they talk for a few minutes, stop, and I'll sit back, and I'll say, may I offer you some advice? And they say, okay. And I say, try saying to your son, may I offer you some advice? Because, again, it puts the kid in control. And, of course, parents then ask, but they say, well, what if he says no? And if he says no, you say, okay, that's fine. If, if you change your mind, I'd, lo I'd love to share this with you. We so often think because we think it's important that our kid has to listen to it. Well, I don't have, you can, you can have, you can have the meaning of life, Rebecca, but I don't have to listen if I don't want to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't. Very true. Um, there's this guy named Ron Magan, uh, who's this, a guru on communication. And he says that, this is really interesting. We like this a lot. He said, in terms of relationships, you can kind of make, have a positive account balance or account deficit. And you make deposits into this relationship so that people will kind of hear what you, what you want to say by either showing care or showing respect. And you make withdrawals by inconveniencing them. And so I think what I think a lot of parents do is they're trying to give advice that in their mind shows care. Like, you know, this is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to do this to have a successful future, blah, blah, blah. But they may do it in a way that doesn't show respect. You know, so Bill, if you, I mean, you, you need to do this if you're going to be successful in school. Well, I care about Bill and I want to be successful in school, but I've done it in a way that's not respectful because I basically told him the way that you're doing it is knuckleheaded. And, you're, and if you don't listen to me, you can't figure this out without me. Yeah. Yeah. We, we send a lot of subliminal messages to our children, right? By just uh -huh. the way that we approach them with things that we think they should be doing. And I mean, just the way we give our verbal cues, sometimes we send them messages of we don't trust them or we don't think they're capable. Or I know you talked a little bit about that too, like some of those messages that we don't intend to say to our children, but that get heard by them. You know, I, I was just talking to a, this mother, was, uh, I mentioned earlier that this 17-year-old that's in upper state New York who wants to go back to uh, the New York City, and I, I mentioned in the, in the book, we talk about the cost-benefit of making decisions for kids. And the benefit may be that, that we have more experience and, and, and wisdom about things, and we sometimes we may know better than the kid does. But the cost is that every time, especially again, when what's kids need to be, you know, 10, 11, 12, 34, every time you, you say to a kid, no, your way is the wrong way, we're gonna do it my way, I know better than you do, that we wanna minimize that message because we want kids to practice trusting themselves, practice mm -hmm. tuning into their own intuition, what's right for me, tuning into the feelings I said before. Yeah, I think a lot of adults don't. We were brought up kind of that authoritarian thing of like, you will do this and this is how. And so as adults, we end up being unhappy in jobs we don't like, you know, <laughs> and we can't recognize our own feelings and emotions because we've shoved them down so much. Does that? I used to do a lot of psychotherapy and, and, and so often 
I'd sit down with a 35-year-old or a 40-year-old, and I'd say, how can I help in the first session? And they'd say, I feel like I spent my whole life trying to live up to other people's expectations. Now I'm trying to figure out what's important to me. And I, I was thinking inside, let's get an earlier start on this. Yeah. Let's, and so can I just mention one other, sure. uh, really some of the science that Ned and I have felt is so powerful. It's actually it's, uh, one of the guys who put the sense of control on the map is Steve Meyer at the University of Colorado. He studies rats. And the basic paradigm is rat A and rat B are in a, in a little box. And their tail's outside the box. There's a wheel inside the box. Their tail gets shocked. Rat A turns the wheel and the shock stops. Rat B turns the wheel and the shock doesn't stop. Rat A, when he's turning the wheel, his prefrontal cortex is activating. And when the prefrontal cortex activates, it dampens down the stress response. So rat A goes into coping mode. Even if you disconnect, the wheel doesn't work anymore. He stays in coping mode. He is not very stressed. So rat B doesn't have that sense of control. Rat B becomes extremely easily distressed. Rat B, having the experience, I can control a stressful situation, is almost impossible to stress. And so we think this is so important given that what the Steve Meyer says is that a sense of control inoculates you from the harmful effects of stress. And given that we have these unprecedented levels of stress and anxiety and unhappiness and loneliness, even before the COVID crisis. Oh, yeah. It's that, pound tenfold now. <laughs> right. And so if, if the sense of control inoculates you from the harmful effects of stress, we want kids to have the experience of dealing with something stressful, activating their prefrontal cortex, trying to solve their problem. So one of the things we suggest if you're a third grader is the only kid in her friend group who doesn't get invited to a birthday party, or you got a 15-year-old whose girlfriend just broke up with them and they're really unhappy, you say to yourself, whose problem is it? And it's not like that's your problem, buddy. It's not like it's just that respectfully, I want to realize it's their problem, not mine. So my role is not to solve it for them. My role is to be supportive, but not to leap in and try to solve it for them because then I, then I deprive them of that experience that they can solve their own problems. Oh, yes. If I could add to that science, by the way, people often ask, why do we use all this stuff of science about rats? They, the reason that there's a lot of science done with rats, they have brain systems really similar to people, but you can do things to rats that would arguably be pretty wrong to do to children. <laughs> um, <laughs> in addition to Steve Meyer, there's a, a guy named Michael Meany who did this experiment with rats and watched what happened to them if they were raised with stress, but with a very nurturing parent. And so in this experiment, they took rat pups, which were baby rats, based on the moment they were born, they whisked them away, and then these lab techs sat there and kind of had a little latex gloves, and they're, they're blind, they're hairless. I mean, it's pretty stressful. But then if they gave them back after 20 minutes or half an hour, if they gave them back to mom, and mom was a high-looking and grooming rat, which is the kind of rat equivalent of hugs and kisses, the cortisol, the principal stress hormone, would flow out of these little bodies, and they'd be like, oh, thank goodness. And what media did was do this day after day after day until these pups reached maturity, and then looked at what had happened to their brains. And there was this incredible connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And actually, the, the single best marker for mental health is how strong are those connections between the prefrontal cortex that put things in perspective and the stress response. Because something stressful happens and your brain goes, just like Bill was talking about with the, with the rats in the cage and the spin the wheel, they go into coping mode. Now here, these baby pups, all that they had the experience was going from really intense, like, oh my goodness, to oh, thank goodness. 
And mom rat didn't go in there and save them, didn't do the homework for them, didn't do anything more than be affectionate and warm and nurturing after this difficult experience. And so you talked about the very beginning worried about helicopter parents. And, the, and it seems to us that as helicopter parents, we can make two mistakes. One, we deprive kids of the opportunity to handle things, to be in stressful, struggling situations because we don't want to see them. Well, let, let me fix that for you. Let me solve, solve that. And we take away that growth that comes from meaningful struggle. And we don't let home be a safe base. We don't make it low enough stress because when we are hypervigilant, constantly looking for problems, we can't be fully relaxed and be the coolant of that there, 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 high licking and grooming mom rat. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that moves me to the next thing that I'd love to talk about. You know, in the book, you talked about tolerant stress versus toxic stress and how parents need to make our home like that safe space. And I really, uh, there was part of the book that I was somewhat cringing. Um, I've had depression issues in my life and I've tried to, um, me too. Uh, you know, not uh, not let it show to my children and then found out later on, like they were catching those clues the whole time. Like talk about like the climate for learning and how those stresses can affect, you know, those emotions can affect learning, you know, maybe that tolerant and toxic stress and how those might be different. So, so, jump in first? <laughs> so the scientists say there's three kinds of stress. There's positive stress, like I'm excited about, I'm a little pumped up for a, a game or a, a musical performance. I, I got kind of jitters a little bit, I got butterflies. It's positive, that really, it's your brain really optimizing to perform well. There's tolerable stress that my parents divorced, it's, you know, I flunked a grade or it's, you know, something was really stressful, but it doesn't go on forever. My parents are loving and supportive, right? My grandparents are whatever. And there's, there's toxic stress. And toxic stress is unrelenting and or a lot of stressful situations and very little support. And I wanted to be clear that as much as we want kids to, to solve their own problems, we don't want them to be chronically stressed. And I say that in part because the optimal mental state for learning is relaxed alertness. You got to be focused. But if, if you're too stressed, you, you have enough alertness to really to, to pay attention. But, you, but if you're too stressed, you can't learn at all. And so we want kids, for the most part, to not be very stressed. And then when something stressful happens, let them figure it out with our support, with our loving support. And, and ideally, home, Rebecca, is a safe base. Play the role of a non-anxious presence. And it doesn't have to be perfect. What we want to be modeling for kids it's not fearlessness. It's not, you know, just happy face all the time. We want to model courage. And if you have depression, dealing with depression takes a ton of courage. And one of the things you can model for your kids, if they're picking up that mom's sad or whatever, is that I'm, I'm really dealing with this. I, I know that, that a lot of the thoughts that I have are irrational. I'm really working hard to, to remind myself about what's real. Even with quite young kids, you can really, if you're struggling, let them in a little bit on it. But, but model the create the struggle, the fact that you're going to beat this kind of idea. Mm -hmm. Well, and what about anxiety? That was another thing that you talked about, that kids can pick up our anxiety and, you know, can end up not modeling that well. Just a, our own anxiety over what they're doing can, can relate into how they handle anxiety throughout their life, right? Is that... Well, well yeah. I mean, and, and part of it is our children have spent a lifetime, their lifetime, 
watching our faces. If you have a little baby, right, looking at you, and you look at them and you, and you screw up your face and make it angry or intense, you can make the burst into tears just by looking at your, because your face will respond to that. And as kids get older, this, this continues on there. They're constantly looking at our faces for clues about are things okay or are things, are things unsafe? And one of the things we want to be awfully careful about Seeing one thing when the opposite is true. I mean, if you say to your kids, you know, everything's fine, don't worry about it, right? But our face is screwed up and shows all of this fear or anger. My goodness, what do they do with that? Do they believe what mommy or daddy is telling them? Or do they believe what they're actually feeling? And that's a cognitive dissonance we really don't want to have. The other thing is that particularly kids go through adolescence, they become incredibly attuned to other people's feelings because they're supposed to, but they're just not that great yet at explaining them. Right. And so if they can see that, gosh, you know, mom's having a hard time, she must be upset about something. The kids will, will so often default to they're upset, mom's upset near me, so therefore she must be upset with me. Or if you say, today's been a hard day for me. I was, th- I was thinking about something that happened a long time ago, and, I, and I, still, I still get sad when I think about it. So if, I'm a little, if I seem a little weird today, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just, it's one of those days when I just feel kind of sad. Well, then this changes it because they're not thinking that they're in trouble and we're worried like what's going on. And it also, you're, you're modeling vulnerability, right? You're, you're modeling truthfulness and that, that hard feelings are part of life. And it also arguably puts them in a position where they can say, well, that's okay, mommy. I'm sad too sometimes. Would you like me to get you a cookie or whatever they would do <laughs> to try to make you feel better? That's such a healthier and more accurate, you know, living and learning environment than mm-hmm. for us to always act like n- nothing's wrong, you, even though, you know, you're a human being, you have hard feelings, I'm a human being, I have hard feelings. Yeah, I think that's what I really loved uh, about your book. And uh, it's one thing I had to learn the hard way through parenting that um, we have to be really great models for them on a myriad of situations, you know, of, of positive emotions, negative emotions, how we learn, how we do all that kind of stuff. And I love that about your book. What about downtime? We live in a society now that is just constant go, go, go. We have our kids in a numerous activities, you know, to be good parents, we have to keep them busy and we have to keep them, you know, active and doing all of these things. Do you have any advice to parents about how, you know, not being incessantly busy might be more helpful to their children? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We have two chapters, one called Radical Downtime. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that I flunked out of graduate school at Berkeley in English, but when I was there, I read a book written by a physician called The Causes of Increased Nervousness in Americans. And it was written in 1881. And the, 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 the hypothesized wow. causes of what this physician was perceived to be in the late 1800s, this increased nervousness in his patients, were things like the railroad and Western Union and the pocket watch, things that made life go faster and made us more attentive to small units of time. You magnify that by Mm 10,000, given our lifestyle now. And you think about how fast-paced everything is, that that if something doesn't download in 10 seconds, it's so frustrating. And and so the idea is that the balance between rest and activity in our lives are so way out of whack, and the pace of life is so fast that we need more radical downtime. And by radical downtime, we mean... What you're doing looks like it's a waste of time. What we're actually doing is extremely beneficial for your mind and body. It includes time for mind-wandering and daydreaming. And that's because 
extensive evidence shows that if, if kids have time just to think, just to be in their own head, even if they're a little bored, that, that it leads to better problem solving, creativity, to a stronger sense of self, sense, sense of identity, and to better empathy for people. Yeah. And we also uh, are big fans of meditation. We both practice meditation. We both want to see kids and parents practice meditation. We see meditation as really a really important antidote now to this this chronic stress and and rush uh, glued to a screen. Being able to, to go within one's own self and experience that that very deep peaceful level of what your own mind is becoming increasingly important. And the third form of radical downtime is sleep. And then Ned, you, 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 you and I both talk, but you, you're, you're the, you love. <laughs> well, in part because this is probably the first arrow in my quiver to try mm -hmm. to help kids perform better. And, and you know, one of the things that's been interesting with this, this COVID and Corona is that a lot of things have been disrupted, some in a bad way and some in a good way. Um, because I do stuff, you know, all this work with test prep, I'm oftentimes, you know, paying attention to how kids are doing with scores, understandably. And a bunch of the kids I'm working with are doing fantastically better now on their practice test than they were a couple months ago. Wow, that's and awesome. was trying to figure this out. And to a one, it's because they're getting more rest. And so I, I've, I've asked a couple of kids and I, I get answers like, so how much are you sleeping now? Like, you know, I don't know, like 10 hours a night. And I said, well, how much did you used to sleep? And like, like, like six hours a night. And I said, I, I want you to hold on to this. I want you to put a pin in this and remember this because what you're experiencing right now is what your brain is able to do when it's fully rested. Yeah. Because most of the time people are running around chronically sleep deprived. And, and, and the reason this is, it disrupts all those executive functions. It, it, the effects look very similar to having ADHD. The biggest thing that I share with kids is this, when you have insufficient sleep, it elevates cortisol, which is the principal stress hormone. And so the effects of, the, of sleep insufficiency on the brain look a lot like the effects of stress. And so the easiest way you experience this is when you know that you've experienced when you're really tired, you feel like kind of the whole world's dark, everyone's cutting you off in traffic, your friends are being jerks. I said, I have this boy I was working with, he's, he's, he's hilarious, he's a super bright kid, both anxious and ADHD. So it's a complicated brain. And I said to this guy, I said, you ever notice how you're really tired? Your mom's like even more annoying than normal. And without missing a beat, because really fast brain, he goes, my God. I must be tired all the time. <laughs> just hell, right? But this is what we feel like. I'm like, you know, your, your spouse, your friends, like everybody, oh my goodness. And it's simply that this is what sleep insufficiency does to the brain. I mean, but, you know, New York City, mm -hmm. we've been up there, you know, the, the, is known for the, and ah, everyone's yelling at each other and trapping and being, I'm in a hurry to tell and all this kind of stuff. But it's also known as the city but that never, never sleeps. That's interesting. Right? That is very true. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the neuroscience in the book's amazing. The things that uh, we're asked to do to model to our children. Um, I'd love you to talk just a little bit about creating that inner drive for kids. I mean, in the book, you discuss various types of children. You know, you got the Hermione Granger who, who has that inner drive, who isn't sleeping because she's trying to get all the studying done and, and all that stuff, to the Eeyore who doesn't think they, they can, to the child that's disinterested. I mean, that's what I hear all the time, like, oh, well, it must be easy for you. Your kids are naturally self-motivated because I, I tend to have more Hermione Granger type children than the Eeyore or the disinterested kids. But 
you well, know, well, it's, it's kind of... interesting, an important point, when we're talking about motivation, there's intrinsic motivation and there's extrinsic motivation. So intrinsic motivation is I'm working hard, but not just that I'm working hard, but that I want to work hard. Like we want our kids to do well in school, mm-hmm. but more fundamentally, we want them to want to do well, right? Where extrinsic is carrots and sticks. And extrinsic motivation works beautifully but it never transmogrifies into, it never morphs into intrinsic motivation, right? So if you threaten the heck out of me or bribe me, I have probably all kinds of things that I do that I don't really want to do, but I, because it's, it's not the thing, it's the, it's the reward or the punishment I'm trying to avoid. So the question that you're, I think, really asking is how do you develop intrinsic motivation? And even those Hermione Grangers, a lot of times they're not intrinsically motivated. It's, it's they're trying to be perfect because they mm-hmm. fear what will happen if they don't continue to be perfect, right? And that's still externalized, right? Yeah. So there's a model of what's called um, self-determination theory, which is a model of intrinsic motivation. And it holds very elegant, holds we need three things. We need a sense of competency, a sense of autonomy, and a sense of relatedness. So if I'm terrible at math and I feel like I'm, I'm useless and I'm the worst, I don't want to work harder to get better. I, want, I don't want to do it at all, right? I need a sense of autonomy that I, it's my choice, it's my control. I get, to, I get to have some say over this. I'm not just you know, being told what to do. And I need a sense of relatedness. So this is why great teachers are worth their weight in gold, right? Because they don't just get kids to work hard. They get kids to want to work hard. And so the challenge is with parents, we, it's too easy for us to lean hard into that competency thinking, well, if only he were better at this, then he'd really feel good about himself and be motivated. And we spoke with Edward Deasy, who's one of the guys who put this together decades ago. And it's one of the most supportive models in all of psychology, hundreds and hundreds of studies. And we said, it seems to us that if we're going to lean on one of these three things, that it really should be autonomy. Is that right? And he said, unquestionably, in part because every year the kids are in school, they experience less and less and less autonomy, right? You know, I mean, think about when you're four or five, you get to figure out what do you want to do with free time, right? And when you're 14 or 15 or 18, you have you to raise have your hand to go to the bathroom. You have to raise your hand. You have to raise your hand. May I go to the bathroom? <laughs> I mean, may I, I, what? I need permission to go to the bathroom? I'm giving you a break. And so what we suggest is that we do everything we can to keep in mind that this is the three-legged stool, right? That we want to help kids develop skills, but we want to support their autonomy. And we want to also do that in a way that we maintain our relationship with them. And this is back to being the consultant. I'm here to help, but I'm not here to make you do this. You know, I'd like you to do this, but I'm not going to try to make you do this because this is your life. I'll do anything I can to support you. I'd love you to chapter of a book. I'd love you too much to fight with you about homework, but I'll do anything I can, but I can't do anything I can to help. And for us, the most important outcome of high school is not where you go to college, even though I'm a test prep guy. It's developing the brain that you're going to carry into, into adulthood. And so we want kids to use childhood and adolescence to pay attention to what they like to do and to work really hard at the things. One of the, uh, uh, there's a guy named Reed Larson we talk about who talks about the passionate pursuit of pastime. The kids don't become intrinsically motivated by dutifully doing their homework. They do it by really digging into things that they love, whether it's sports or art or coding or rock climbing or, you know, small engine repair or the part-time job or whatever, they, they, things that they really get into. Because so often for school, they do what they need to to get the marks that are good enough, and then that's it. But with a pastime, you want to do it all the time, and there's no A and you're done. You're constantly pushing and working to get better. So do you want to talk a little about your, your experience with music in that? 
Sure. Parents often have the idea that to maximize a kid's potential, they have to be kind of working at the top of every moment. And kids who feel that they constantly, they constantly have to be driven to achieve their potential, they burn out. They don't reach their potential, they burn out. And the idea is we want kids to work hard and we want kids to play hard. And what you're referring to, Ned, is, is that when I was in high school, I graduated from high school with a 2.8 grade point average. And I don't I have no memory of turning in an assignment on time. I never got page, page, page 75 in a book. And it just wasn't a big priority for me. I was, I was an avid rock and roll musician. I played in the band. It was, it was really the most important thing in my life. And on school nights, I tell myself, I'll learn a song, I'll practice the, the organ or the guitar for a few minutes, and then I'll, I'll study. And I, I remember just vividly coming out of this little room where I had my organ and the guitar, two or three hours later, having no idea what time it was, having been completely absorbed in what I was doing. And I, oftentimes I think I'd been in there half an hour, I'd been, I'd been in there for two and a half hours later. So the, the idea was in doing that, I was experiencing a brain state that combined high focus, high energy, high determination, high effort, and low stress. And ideally, as much of our adult life, that's where we want to be. We want to be focused. We want to be engaged. We want to be motivated. We want to be goal-directed, but not highly stressed. And so what Reed Larson says is that's the way you sculpt the brain. So I see that self-motivated. And so I see a lot of kids who are incredibly motivated for dance or sports or the, the various things you were mentioning, Ned, but aren't particularly motivated for school. And what I say to them is I don't worry about you. I think at some point you're going to need to get take school more seriously. But I know that once you do, you're going to be able to go pedal to the metal because I know you're sculpting a brain that's so used to that brain state of high effort, high energy, high focus, high determination, low stress. And when, when school becomes more important, you're going to be able to turn on the jets. Yeah. Well, and another thing that's what I love about your book is I think that as parents, we need to flip our feelings of what's important. And a lot of us are focused on grades or on the right college or, you know, trying to set our children up for success. What the goal is basically is like, let's develop healthy brains um, and uh, some autonomy, um, emotional intelligence, you know, those types of things. <laughs> I think that's really what we want for our children is that they have the drive to learn whatever they feel empowered to learn and then also you know that they're mentally and emotionally healthy people when you think about your own life right like you know do you have this sense for, for everyone who's listening to this do you have the sense that your life would be profoundly better right if you had married someone who went to a school that was two points higher on the ranking of u.s news and world report colleges does anyone really think that, right? Or when we reflect back on high school, do we remember most what our GPA is versus, you know, music or sports or dances or time with friends? I mean, I'm still in academics and I, academia, and I can remember so little what I actually learned in school, but I can remember all these other things that really helped form who I am as a person. The person who put Bill and me together is a, a woman who's a college counselor and, and from my perspective, the best in, in the planet, on the planet. She's unbelievably wise. And she, years ago, she told me, she said, you know, I've told this to people for years and nobody believes me, even though I'm a college counselor. She said, but here it is, that whom you marry matters so much more than where you go to college. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so when you think about that, that emotional intelligence, right, which goes back to, as Bill said before, you know, if the emotional parts of your brain are damaged, you can't figure out what to have for breakfast. 
Well, goodness, at the age of 10 and 12 and 14 and 16, if you're not spending a lot of time trying to figure out what you want out of life and for yourself and how are you going to contribute to this world, good luck designing a successful life. I have a student that was, I just got a, a text from her. She's transferred colleges happily to a, a, a place that could be better fit for her. And I remember asking her at the start of her senior year, I said, what do you like best to do? What do you, what do you most enjoy in life? And she said, I have no idea. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I spend all of my time and energy trying to meet other people's expectations for me. I don't, I don't know what's most important to me. Wow. And I thought, this is a young woman who's 18, is about to go off to college with fistfuls of her parents' money. And she has no idea, she has no direction what way to go, right? <laughs> my, my wife's a Latin teacher and one of the best quotes, a Roman statesman, Seneca, said, for the person who doesn't know the port that he's seeking, the direction that he's seeking, no wind is favorable. You have to know where you want to go. Yeah. And that's such an important part of high school is figuring out. And you don't have to know all the answers, but goodness, don't you want to spend time thinking about what's important to me? Well, and hopefully as a parent, we're looking at the long game, not just high school to college. And then, oh, once we get that degree, we're going to be set. I think that's where a lot of our uh, young people now are feeling very disenfranchised <laughs> because they, you know, they got so through true. that and then they're like, well, okay, I got the, I got all of these things that you said. And I'm not, you know, the A-list that I thought I was going to be. You know, and from my point of view, Rebecca, and I think Ned and I share this point of view, the whole thinking about life, you have a better life if you go to a more elite school. It's just not true. Virtually any metric that where you go to college, especially for families that are, at least assuredly for families who are middle class or upper middle class, it makes almost no difference in terms of how much money you make, how successful you are career-wise, your life has no connection with how happy you are. And when you look at the mental health crisis on college campuses, including the most elite colleges, you think this couldn't be really what I want my, for my kid to, to go in where, where the, the majority of kids are seeking mental health services, very high levels of suicidal ideation, huge level of drug use. Affluent kids who go to high, high achieving school are much more likely than middle class kids to have anxiety, depression as teenagers and as young adults to be diagnosed with a, with a chemical use disorder. Mm -hmm. So the idea that somehow, as I, I talked with a group of leaders in, in Houston, high school students, a, a couple months ago, and I said, how many of you want to be happy as an adult? And they kind of, they kind of, they embarrassed a little by the question, they all kind of sheepishly said, sure, we, we all do. What do people tell you about what it takes to be happy as an adult? And one guy said, well, basically, if you get into a good enough college, then your life is set. That's a really bad answer. And I'm not faulting the kid. Because That's what's if, been drilled into them for, you know. Look at the science of happiness, that what makes people happy. After a fairly modest amount of income, making more money doesn't make you, it makes you happier for a month or so if you get a big increase in money. But, but after that, you go back to, to, to your baseline level. And the, the, what really makes people happy is not status. It's not power. It's relationship. It's service. It's meaning. I think we, we give kids these terrible, terribly toxic messages by having the idea that somehow, if you don't go to the most elite school, your life is going to suck. 
<laughs> yeah. And like you said, all those uh, experiences, relationships, those things that are, are the things that really matter. Okay, just one more question about kids in particular. I've been told before, like, and I don't have ADD. Well, I don't know. I think I do have a child that's ADD. <laughs> and, I, and I'm a little bit that way too. But hey, um, autistic or learning challenges or whatever, I can't give my children autonomy. And I love your section in the book. You actually talk about those. Do you want to talk about maybe how those techniques of autonomy actually help children with like those learning challenges? So this is Bill. I'll start. And the idea is that, let's take the ADHD as an example. Well, the, the, all, all the interventions for ADHD basically have been to try to get kids to do stuff. Let's find the right reward, the right kind of structure, the right kind of compliance training. You get, I'm the boss. And we're trying to motivate the kids through rewards. And those things can be effective in the short term for getting kids to do stuff or first getting them to stop doing stuff that's annoying. <laughs> However, it does nothing to develop intrinsic motivation. And my experience is, having worked for 40 years with kids, is that you can't become independent if you don't have a sense of autonomy, if you don't have a sense of this is my life, and I'm going to get out of what I put into it. There's just now, there's a program for, adolescent, for, for families, parents of, of adolescents on supporting autonomy. But there's been very little research in autism, for example, on supporting autonomy, I think I, my own feeling is that the reason such a small percentage of, of even very bright, college-educated people with autism hold a job, this very small percentage, they grow up without that sense of agency or autonomy. So I think that the, in the book, in that chapter on kids with special needs, we talk about the particular challenges for parents and educators of supporting autonomy, but we also underline some ways to do it and how crucial it is that we start shifting our things to they can't become independent unless they develop that sense of autonomy, a sense of control over their own life. I love that because, um, like I said, I teach these coaching classes and then people, parents that have some, you know, extenuating circumstances, they always think that that trying to get that autonomy is actually, it's, you know, they can't do that with their kids. And so it's a great, great chapters on how that actually yeah. helps. So much of the science you know, is based on primates and it's based on rodents, right? I don't know about these children, right? But it's hard to imagine even the most ADHD kid, you know, has organizational skills that are substantially better than that of, of your typical rodent. So, so give me a break, right? And I, we understand, you know, that it's, it's hard with kids who, who, who struggle with inattention, or who struggle with, with the organization, struggle with, with, with all, I mean, because with, with all the different things that can make learning and life hard, but because we know the brains develop in the ways that they are used. I mean, that's the foundational breakthrough of the last 30 years of neuroscience is a neuroplasticity. And you have kids who say, well, I know that the prefrontal cortex isn't done, you know, it's baked in, you know, until they're at least 25. It's like, would you want to wait until age 25 <laughs> to allow kids to start making their own decisions. Because one of the things for me is that I want kids to make decisions for themselves as much as they can. And when we say, unless it's crazy, meaning unless almost anybody you can think of and say, that is a spectacularly 
terrible idea. Yeah, talking to anyone, the aunt, the uncle, whatever, and if they right. disagree, <laughs> I love right. that I part. I mean, you know, yeah, because I mean, you know, it can be the case that, that Bill has a better idea that, that, than I do. His way may be the better way, but that doesn't mean that amazing. And part of it is that when when kids have to, and for adolescents, we really not only should they, we kind of shouldn't insist that they make their own decisions because they need that practice, but also. When kids have to make decisions, they have to own it, uh-huh. right? They have to own it. So we get this all the time. Like, well, I, mean, I made my kid do that. Well, here's the problem. If it's not working out well, your kid is going to constantly say, dad, I told you it was a terrible idea. I knew this was going to be a disaster. And, and they're kind of invested in their own failure. If they have to own the decision and, and it's not going well, well, chances are they're going to double down, making it work somehow because one, they want to be successful, but two, teenagers want to be right and so they want to do everything they can to avoid having mom or dad say i told you that was a terrible idea they're going to work like nuts to make that decision work and so again this is why even for kids who struggle with adhd we want them to work hard at making their own decisions and being committed you know we we say "I, i i trust that you can make good decisions and i know that when you make a mistake which you will because you have a human brain that you'll be able to figure out what to do from there. Because what is life apart from constantly saying, well, that, what next, what next, what next? Yeah, it's a great chapter, especially like autism or those learning challenges. Uh, I think the biggest obstacle maybe that parents have is it takes them longer. They might not come around to it as quickly. Maybe it's a time issue for the parents that they're just, they can't be patient enough to wait it out. Do you think that that might be it? Like it's maybe a time issue control? I don't know. I think that it, a part of it, I mean, we, we virtually never get pushback about the basic ideas in the book. What parents do say is it's hard mm-hmm. and it's hard. You say, okay, I'm, I'm going to trust my kid on this. You have to sit on your hands and zip your lip, <laughs> yeah. which causes you to experience a low sense of control. And there's nothing more stressful than a low sense of control. Yeah. That's why the second book is trying to make this easier, trying to give more tools for parents to make this transition and make them know that it's safe uh, to do this. Part of the problem might be is we are watching them like a hawk, like society tells us we need to. And it's just like, yeah, we can't sit on our hands because... I don't, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, I'm like, we don't have anything else going on. I had a kid I worked with who was brilliant, but organizationally, probably still on the JBT, right? And yeah. he went to an independent school here outside D.C. And he lived on the other side of the, where the beltway where it goes around D.C. And so every day he's probably 35, 45 minutes in a car every single day. And his mom described that he would sit there every day and he'd be basically typing papers on his cell phone, like, you know, a letter at a time. And she's like, oh my goodness. And she said, it would be so much easier if he would just do this. You know, if he'd start a few days before not doing it. And I kind of smiled and I said, my suspicion is it'd be easier for you. And she's like, ugh. And she says, you have no idea how hard it is for me to watch him waste so much time. And somewhat unhelpfully, maybe helpfully, I said, you know, you know what my advice is? Don't watch. Don't watch, yeah. Don't watch, because <laughs> it's his job to figure this out. If it makes you crazy, 
just act like it's all good and go do something else. <laughs> that part of the book reminded me of how I feel about my daughter. I finally had to just turn her education over to her dad because I'm like, <laughs> I can't watch this anymore. It's driving me crazy. But because he's not around, he's not watching it, you know, and then I'm like, well, I guess it's up to you two to figure that out. <laughs> One of the formative experiences in my, my life was early on, I worked with so many underachievers. And I was trained in family therapy, and I, so I use a family therapy technique, and I say, if you don't turn in an assignment, who's most upset? And invariably, the kid would say, my mom. And then I'd say, who's next most upset? And the kid would say, my dad. I'd say, who's next most upset? My teacher. Who's next most upset? My tutor. And then my therapist. And the kid was never on the list. And it just seemed, I realized that where adults are spending 80 units of energy trying to get the kid to, to work, and the kid will spend 20. And if the adults get more anxious and ratchet up to 90, the kid will spend 10. And my experience is it doesn't change until the energy changes. It's hard to do because we have to trust the kid. And parents often say, well, you're saying just let them fail. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying offer all the help that they need. I want kids to have any help that they need. But I don't want to force it. I don't want to take responsibility for something that's actually their responsibility. Exactly. Then I weaken them. I love it. Um, well, just two more questions. I've already taken away too much of your time. But what habits do you feel are most helpful for us to mentor or for us to model or even for us to try to teach our children? I think certainly I, I, the top of my list would be a consistent sleep routine. Okay. And just, just, and just letting kids know that I function so much better if I get eight hours of sleep than six, so I'm, I'm going to go to bed. And we suggest that families basically have some family meeting once in a while about how are we doing in terms of staying well-rested as a family? Because all of us, I mean, we're, most adults are sleep-deprived. Kids are definitely sleep-deprived. Yeah. And we've been working together as families to support each other and getting enough rest. And so I think we want to model a consistent, regular sleep routine. Um, and develop that habit. It, it, that may be the key to so many of the others. Ned, do you want to? Oh, I mean, that was my <laughs> that was my first answer too. But we can play family feud, and I'll go down the line for the next one. Um, I uh, because we're right in the middle of talking about uh, working a second book about communication. We talked a lot about modeling generally, and one of it is that because when kids get anxious or be or they're angry, they're frustrated, they can struggle to come up with good solutions. They kind of get stuck, right? They're gone down a tunnel. They don't know what else to do. And then we as parents often pluck them out or they come running us for help. We want kids to practice, you know, when things don't go well, going, what, what, what do I do here? And so one thing that for kids often look at parents and think that their mom and dad have all the answers. <laughs> and what I think can be helpful is to make visible to them when we're struggling to figure something out, when we don't know what the right answer is. And, and so that can be, you know, sort of talking to yourself out loud when you're going through this, this and you say, you know, gosh, I'm really having this hard time with this thing and, and enlist their help, even if they don't, you know, even if you don't necessarily need their help for the answer, to let them kind of behind the curtains. And I'm trying to figure this out. You know, I, I told my friend I was gonna do this other thing, but this other thing came up here. I, and I really want to go to both, but gosh, you know, or whatever you can come up with and let kids see that you're not perfect and that you struggle with these things as well and that you're, you're, you're trying and just kind of work through problems either out loud or with their help. 
because we want kids to to know that that's part of life that they're not supposed to know answers all have answers all, all the time and that it's also an important part of life to ask for help not to have someone else solve it for you but to reach out for help kind of know who's part of your team because you know, when you talked before about kids who are perfectionistic you know who will do everything on their own and, and they need to be perfect and that leads to some bad outcomes or people who you know who, who just well okay forget it I'll, I'll give up on it and and what, why even bother? But when we work through problems to try to do it in a way that's visible and let kids see, you know, us be less than perfect, knowing that we can bounce back. So I, I, I wish I wish I'd said that differently. I think I made my brother a little upset about that, but it's probably okay. You know, and just and kind of verbalize, he'll, he'll probably, you know, he, we, we get along well, I'm sure I can make it up to him next time, to kind of verbalize those things so that kids can see us, 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 see our thinking as well. Yeah, I love that. I love the transparency that you might have with your children and help them work through that problem. Uh, it kind of reminds me of a meme that I saw once and I was showing it to my daughter and I said, it said something like, the biggest thing I learned as an adult that my parents never had all the answers. And she's like, well, I already know that. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm not even putting on a good show for you or <laughs> anyway, but, but at the same time too, it helped me feel like I've been real and transparent with my children uh, so that they know that I'm not perfect. I don't have all the answers and that we can move through this together. And I love how you model that. You have to show them, right? I mean, that's probably instead of lecturing how we should do something, just talking about like talking it through with your own life sometimes is, is really helpful for them to get the message without feeling like you're lecturing them about something, right? Absolutely. That's really yeah. well said. And I'll, yeah. I'll just very, very parenthetically, I think one of the best habits that parents can model for their kids is apologizing. And especially if we overreact and then we yell at a kid, we, we, we're trying to force, we're, 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 we're doing something, we realize that later that's the wrong thing. I'm 70 years old. I don't remember exactly anymore, but I remember when I was 40 or 50, I could still remember specific incidents where my father got mad at me about something at bedtime. He'd come in and sat in bed and apologize to me. And it made me feel so respected. And I think mm -hmm. that the idea, if we want kids to, to be respectful to the people, we want to treat them with respect. If we want them to apologize. You see kids who better say you're sorry to grandma. That's not very effective. It's much more effective to model mm -hmm. real contrition. And I'm really, I'm sorry. I, I overreacted. I didn't do the most precious thing to me. I was too tired. I was too stressed. And explain them why we overreacted. Yeah. That's really one of the powerful ways to connect with kids. It's a powerful way to connect with any child because we were having a heated discussion at dinner one time and my son's girlfriend was there and my husband got angry at my son. He said something very condescending about himself and my, my husband didn't like him saying that stuff about himself and so he kind of came down hard on him and then later on the conversation he apologized to him but that blew my uh, son's girlfriend away she's like I've never seen an adult ever apologize you know to a kid yeah. or to you know and so it's it's powerful regardless yeah. of who you're working with to apologize to them yeah I love well, that and the last piece that if I could add to that you know is, is talking to you were saying earlier you know that there's so many important things that we can model and you know to, to our kids and really could or, or should but to echo bill's point you know none of us is a perfect parent 
and kids don't need perfect parents. And one of the things that being willing to or being able to apologize, you know, isn't another thing that we need to do perfectly, but it's a way for us to simply say we have to be good enough parents and that we can let ourselves off the bat. Because remember that, that apology, apologizing is, is not only sort of setting things right with the other person, but setting things right within our, ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, I, I did the best that I could and gosh, I, I wish I'd done that differently. I was really tired and it's really you know, upset. And, I, and I, I regret that I said that to you because you know, it was wrong of me to do it. And, I, and I'm sorry that I was so harsh about that. But I'm also, it's, it's like restorative justice, right? I'm trying to get things back right with my kid. But then I also don't spend the next days or weeks or whatever beating myself, either justifying bad behavior by myself or beating myself up ad nauseum. Because if you're above ground and breathing, you're imperfect. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nobody on this planet who does things perfectly. And so the ability to apologize is just a way to, to let ourselves off, off the hook, to make things right with our kids. And, and, to, and to your point, to show respect to, to children as well, because, you know, we're not borrowed from Julie Lithcott Hames. We're not raising children. We're trying to raise adults. And, awesome. and I would apologize to Bill. I would apologize to Rebecca if, if I do things up. And so why would I not do that with my children as well? Yeah. Well, and I kind of wonder, like with the apology thing, I'm, I'm, my brain is exploding thinking about this, but if we did that more as parents, maybe children would realize they don't have to be perfect. And maybe that would cut yep. down on child suicide and stuff, because I think that's what drives it a lot of like, oh, no, I messed up. I'm never going to recover from this. And, you know, so they end the situation yep. where, yep. Anyway, okay. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yep>. there's not <laughs> even <What>? any <laughs> question. <laughs> no, I always apologize awesome. to my kids. You know, I, I'd say, I'm not going to torture myself about this because I, I, I don't expect myself to perfect. I did overreact and I'm sorry. Sorry, I, I didn't trust you. And I, I, know I, that I know I can trust you. And I'm sorry I acted like I, I couldn't trust you. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I, mm-hmm. oh, but I'm not, I'm not going to beat myself up forever about it. Good, I, I'll forgive myself. So if I, just, I just wanted to say that to you. That's great. I love that. All right. Well, you've already talked about how you're already collaborating on another book. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? And I'd love to hear, just pre-sell it, you know. (laughs) The working title is What Do You Say? And and, and what it is, is our our agent who read the book and has has a couple kids said, God, this is what it would be great. Have a little bit shorter book. It has a lot of dialogue. It has a lot of the language use to, to implement these concepts. Mm-hmm. And so the first chapter of the book is about really connecting. It's empathy and, and validating kids and really listening carefully, spending time alone with kids and communicating what we really care about as people. And there's a chapter on the language of a parent consultant. How do you phrase things in a way to get buy-in? You have an opinion about something. How do you, how do you let a kid know without it feeling like you're forcing on And we, we talk about decision-making, we would do the chapter on expectations and how to, how to if we, have, we want high expectations for kids, as I said before, we don't want them to be toxic. Mm-hmm. And like that, there's this chapter on, uh, a couple chapters on the language of motivation, the language of helping kids change, the, the talking with kids about sleep and technology, um, talking about kids about what makes people happy, what makes people successful, what does success feel like, and some of the dialogues that we can have with our kids to help them understand the world better 
and feel loved and, and develop that motivation to sing. That sounds like a fantastic book. We didn't even, I had tons of questions on technology and all of that, but you know, we got to leave something for the readers yeah. <laughs> to, to look at the book about, but a great, <laughs> uh, <laughs> great dialogue. I love, cause that really is the struggle of like, how do I, how do I say it? You know, it's, we can talk about the concepts all the time, but definitely, you know, how do I approach this is the most right. important thing for sure. Right. Okay, right. that's awesome. Well, and, you know, as we say goodbye, do you guys have any final parting advice for our listeners? And then give us contact information, how we can find out more about you and what you're doing. The contact information, uh, we have a website, it's the selfdrivenchild.com. We also have a, a Facebook group. Uh, where people have seen our talks or listened to us on podcasts like this or read the book um, and join the group. There are just three quick questions to make sure you're a, not a robot. Bill and I will be there Friday. Uh, for now, it's been Friday afternoons, just talking about whatever seems to be kind of in the news and aspects of our book. That's probably the, the way that most people are staying engaged with us. Parting thoughts. Well, you know, for, for me, I'll say that, you know, assuming that this is COVID is still going to be a real part of life, you know, parenting has never been easy. Uh, and this is, this is, this can be really hard, particularly if you're, if there's financial strains, if there are illnesses, I mean, this, you know, you kind of take the normal challenges of parenting and throw a whole bunch more in the mix right now. Yeah. And what I, my advice for both for kids and for parents, and, and, and this may sound silly after we've just spent all this time talking about what we as parents can do better. But one thing in some ways to be the lower our expectations, because you may mention about, they mentioned about, you know, um, struggling with depression a little bit. And I had that, you know, very much through high school and college. And, you know, if I, if I get too stressed, I can go to a pretty dark place pretty quickly. And I know that I got through college in many ways by just lowering my expectations. And I still want, I mean, I want to be successful. And I, and I, and I ended up mm -hmm. being successful in all kinds of wonderful ways. But when things were really hard, I would just remind myself that I'm doing the best I can. Do I want to do better? Yes, I, yes, I do. And, 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 that, and, I'll, and I'll keep moving that direction. But for right now, I'm doing the best that I can. And I think we, you know, we, want, to, we want to be at least as gentle, at least as kind with ourselves as we are to other people because you know this is just for now and we just want we just want to keep on going um and if we can be compassionate self-compassionate that way because it lowers our stress and, and we stop you know stop shooting on ourselves as roger ellis would say <laughs> um it allows us to think better because we have that same prefrontal cortex and we're actually going to solve our problems better and be more flexible and put things in perspective by lowering our expectations at least for now i love that that's I love great. that. And I'll just add that uh, one of my major motivations for, uh, for writing this book with Ned was that I want parents to know that, that it's safe to trust your kids and not to worry about them all the time, not to feel you have to push them all the time. That we live in a country that is very forgiving, that kids can fail at things and, and, and turn themselves around, that so much of what happens with kids is related to brain development. As Ned said, Brain development is so protracted. I just got Christmas cards from a couple of people who I hadn't seen in years just telling me that they say, you were right. These, the kids turned out great, mm -hmm. even though they were, they were hot messes at various times. And that we have so much on our side in terms of brain development and we love our kids, enjoy being with them. We want to encourage them to work hard and to play hard and to rest hard but that we don't have to worry about them all the time. And we don't have to feel that we have to be on them all the time in order for them to develop well. That's a very freeing feeling as a parent. I mean, 
Like, I mean, we were talking about that, uh, that extra stress. And I think that's why grandparents are so needed and necessary in our world is that they've seen it. You know, they've seen the gamut of kids that have grown and people that have changed and people have done this and that. And, you know, so they tend to have that. He's just going through a stage uh, feeling. And um, I, I really think that that's what I love about your book. It's like, let's look at the long game and not just like from, you know, high school through college and how we set them up for success you know, type of thing. It's like mm-hmm. how we set them up for life success is the, well, the most vital thing. One of the points, all of our worry about our kids, it's about the future. Because, because mm-hmm. whatever they're going through now, if, if I had a crystal ball, I could say it's going to be hard for them now but until next not October. And then they're going to be great. That 26, they're going to be golden. <laughs> you wouldn't worry about it. You'd say, okay, this is part of their path. Mm-hmm. What we suggest is you take that long view. And, and whatever they're going through, you don't, don't, if you don't get stuck and terrified, they're going to get stuck. They usually don't. They usually grow out of stuff. They get, get into stuff and they get out of it. And so you, it, it's safe to take that long view, trust development, and to trust kids that they want their life to work. That's great. Well, we could chat all day. I just yeah. loved your book. <laughs> we'll come back for the next one. Yes, definitely. Um, again, we've been chatting with William Sticksrude and Ned Johnson. They wrote the book called The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Children More Control Over Their Lives. They have a Facebook page that I'm definitely getting on now that <laughs> I found out about it. Twitter, and they have the theselfdrivenchild.com. But we're going to be sure to connect you know, social media and website and everything up on our website as well but thank you so much for connecting with the luminous mind and teaching us about parenting and you know all those topics that we talked about i really appreciate your time it's really fun talking to you rebecca super i agree thank you for listening to the luminous mind music featured in this episode from scott holmes to learn more about our podcast check us out at theluminousmind.net